Welcome to Offscript. Tune in every week to hear the stories of and insights from NPs. We're your hosts, Maxine and Danielle, two technologists who are passionate about the future of patient care. Our guest today is Elizabeth Knight, a DNP, PhD, integrative health coach, and long-distance athlete in Portland, Oregon. We're so excited to host Elizabeth and hear about her journey from nurse to nurse practitioner to PhD to integrative health coach to business owner at Flower Power. Today, we discuss Elizabeth's varied career path, insurance-free practice, entrepreneurship, and the fuzzy line between health coaching and primary care. Yeah. Hi, my name is Elizabeth and I see myself really as a person who loves to connect with and help other people navigate the health space. Um, and that can be directly through providing healthcare. It can be through supporting their own goals or whatever that looks like for that person. So it's kind of separate from um, needing to be in a structure. And I've been working to define myself and my role outside of just having a job title. And you touched on this a little bit, but could you please tell us what brought you into nursing and how you decided to pursue a clinical career path? Yeah, um, I actually, in my uh, undergraduate career in college, I didn't start out in healthcare and sciences at all. Um, my first degree that I did was more of a liberal arts path. Um, I went to Oberlin College and I studied international relations and um, world religion. And after I graduated, I worked in the nonprofit world briefly for a little while. And I discovered that I wasn't the type of person who wanted like a send email, sit at my desk, answer the phone kind of job. And I really felt better when I got to do more direct work. Um, so I decided at that time, sort of looking at my options and a combination of personal work and then sort of practical um, thought about what career paths exist and decided that healthcare and specifically nursing was a way that I could um, use my own strengths and preferences and also go down a path um, and, and not have to sort of reinvent the wheel from scratch. So that's how I started out in nursing. That's amazing. Clearly you found a connection to both healthcare and helping people. And um, from our research, you were a nurse from 2008 until you started your DNP and PhD dual degree in 2011. Is that correct? Yes. I worked in critical care as a, in a cardiac ICU nurse for that time. And I did some of that as well while I was getting my advanced degrees um, and continued to work for a DM in the hospital. Um, and so, yeah, that was my initial exposure to work in the field of nursing, um, which is very different from what I do now, but I think it really set the stage because in that early part of my career, I worked um, with very sick people. And especially because I worked in a cardiac unit, we saw a lot of people who were managing the, the sequela or the sort of the long-term consequences of what we might call lifestyle diseases. And sort of since then, I think I've been sort of gradually walking back that ladder of how did we get here? But that early part of my career where I was seeing the sickest sick people, I think really helped to shape how I later have come to interact with people um, who maybe aren't that sick yet or who are worried about being that person in the future. That is such a good analogy of walking back the ladder of how did we get to this point in the healthcare system and an individual's life, any of those steps. How did you decide after that time spent nursing that you wanted to pursue a higher degree? And how did you decide you wanted to pursue a dual DNP PhD program as opposed to one or the other? 
Yeah, so I'll start with the first question um, about about deciding to do a higher degree. Um, and I think I had that sort of in the back of my mind from the get-go, um, or maybe not when I first entered nursing school, but as I progressed through nursing school and I got my bachelor's degree in nursing and became a registered nurse, um, I knew other people um, who were working as nurse practitioners at that time. Um, I met other people who, um, as I was developing my nursing skills, were in school to become nurse practitioners. I learned much more about that role. And I think I was always interested in it sort of from my initial exposure to it. But I also wasn't ready to do it yet. And, you know, there's multiple different ways to go down that path. There are plenty of people who have a really successful transition and they go straight through um, nursing education and they graduate as nurse practitioners without stepping out to work for a while in the registered nurse role. But I wasn't ready to do that. Um, I did actually start taking a few courses um, at the end of my bachelor's degree in nursing towards the, the nurse practitioner degree and decided, yeah, that it wasn't time yet. Um, and so that's when I stepped out and worked for a while and then came back later on. Um, and so that was kind of how I got there. And then once I was in graduate school, um, I started out in a um, master's of science in nursing program that sort of funneled right into a DNP, which is the doctor of nursing practice. Uh, and as I started in that program, um, I had more exposure to nursing research. And I think I didn't have an understanding sort of prior to that of the wide array of types of, of projects that constitute nursing research. And for some people, it's very much bench science. They're, you know, doing analysis in the lab. And for some people, it's very social science and it's all qualitative research and it really runs the gamut. And so I, I became very interested um, in how to integrate the sort of the clinical piece of you know, sitting with patients, being with patients, using the results of research with how to generate that knowledge in the first place. And there's a huge space of um, what we call trans, uh, translational research, which is, you know, broadly thought of as bench to bedside, but it's much more than that. And it's also around knowledge dissemination and getting the work from research out into practice. And as I thought about um, the role of a, a DNP uh, nurse practitioner and a PhD scientist, um, to me, marrying those two seems like a really um, solid way to uh, work in that space, in that translational space. The translational space of both the evidence-backed work that you're creating and then how you're actually applying that to the patient work. It, it seems like you ended up in a place that you were very content with. You did the RN work, experienced that before moving on to getting, you know, a higher degree. Is there anything you would have done differently educationally early on if you knew you wanted to end up doing the track that you ended up doing? Or do you feel like, no, I, I played my cards just right? That's such an interesting question because we can never know that, right? It's it, for, for me to think back and say, would I have done something differently? I might have. I might have tried to focus myself a little bit earlier um, to say, you know, did I go through a whole undergraduate program in something unrelated to nursing and would I have would I have not done that? Would I have, you know, focused into the sciences sooner? Or um, would I have 
applied directly into a PhD program, you know, from the get go and, and sort of had more intention and focus about how I pursued that with a particular research interest. And again, I might have, but it would have given me a different outcome. And I think that allowing myself a little bit more space and some broader exposure to maybe things that I wouldn't have chosen if I'd followed a narrower path um, has changed where I've come to. Uh, and that's allowed me sort of to develop uh, a really unique practice, which would have been different if I'd been more focused earlier on. So yes and no. <laughs> I love that. I, I do think the idea of having a wide aperture and that you change one thing, it's like butterfly effect. Now it's different forever. So I really like the idea of being able to broaden your scope of interest and then narrow once you once you have more conviction. And in nursing specifically, I think we have a lot of space to do that. There are so many different ways that nurses function um, professionally that uh, no two nurses who I know have had paths that are the same. And, you know, you can go get a nursing degree, get licensed to get a hospital job and stay in it until you retire, or you can do, you know, 12 different roles over the course of your career that all inform one another. And those are both valid career paths in nursing. And I don't know that many professions that really have that kind of um, variability, you know, that's just um, available uh, and, and, and not maybe looked on as sort of job hopping or like you didn't get it right the first time. It's like you're building on it. And that's really something that nurses can do. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of versatility with a degree and lots of different paths that one could take. Um, and so we know that after your advanced degree, you started practicing. And one interesting aspect of your practice is that you've never taken insurance. So curious about that thought process and decision. Was it right after school that you decided not to accept insurance or what did that look like? Yeah, you know, it didn't start out as a specific conscious decision that that was something I was never going to do. Uh, it, it the first clinical role that I took out of um, nursing a uh, nurse practitioner school was in a program that was specifically serving uninsured and underrepresented people. And so in that situation, it wasn't like, no, I don't want to work with insurance. It was the, the people who I'm working with in this program don't have access to it. And it was a grant funded program um, that paid me a salary and that allowed us to, to uh, provide care in that way. And so in many ways, we had less access to some of the things that you you would have for your patients in, in an insurance-based practice. Um, we were always sort of finagling resources, trying to get, you know, discounts with work, you know, with local labs, trying to figure out how we could get somebody imaging if they needed it. And it would have to be, you know, um, what's the cheapest test we can get right now? And is that going to be enough? Or how do we get these people away from emergency room? And we're not going to make those referrals, you know, right away because we know that our patients maybe can't do that. And so there's definitely a trade-off in working with that um, population in terms of, of what we can do. Um, but it really taught me to think on my feet and be creative and make use of what was available. And then also to not just sort of default to that, um, escalation, which I think can happen a lot in primary care, especially with inexperienced providers to just say like, uh, I'm not totally sure we'll sort of kick this over to specialists and they'll figure it out. Um, or uh, let's click the box and order this whole panel. And it allowed me to sort of develop a practice of being much more thoughtful about that. 
Um, so that's how I started down that road. And um, my subsequent uh, practices, I think I did make more of an intentional decision that working outside of, of an insurance-based practice um, worked well for me and that I had some, um, I guess, friction. And I think other providers will understand this with, with working in an insurance-based system of, you know, you have to make a provider to provide a call to say why you think your patient uh, needs the particular medication or test that you've decided <laughs> that they need. And you have to justify that decision to a third party who doesn't know your patient. And, and that can be really um, sort of almost um, like intellectually seems like it doesn't make any sense and you know in, in, a, in a way how it does but when that's your day-to-day -day reality it kind of it feels like somebody's always kind of looking over your shoulder um, and that's maybe not the most um, best use of resources <laughs> let's put it that way um, so so if you haven't gotten sort of used to that as the norm and then you're looking in on it you're saying what the heck <laughs> um, and, and so trying to find ways in which I'm, I'm working in different settings that doesn't involve that has, has sort of guided me, I think, going forward. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We're, we're definitely hearing a lot about nurses and clinicians more broadly, really intentionally seeking out roles in which insurance is, is not a factor. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then we know that as part of your practice, you decided to pursue an integrative health coaching certification. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that decision and how your clinical experience led you there? Yeah. Um, so during the early part of the COVID pandemic, um, I was looking for other ways to expand my practice, to relate to patients, to do things that were maybe outside of a more established roles in the healthcare system that were really um sort of confusing at the time, right? It was like things were sort of crumbling around us and it was really not clear how things were going to land. And um, for me in that place, what I wanted to do was, was sort of lean into the parts of my role as a health um, advocate that that I knew I would be able to come back to forever and sort of gave me something to grab onto that would allow me to help people, you know, no matter what um, sort of the system around us um, looks like. And uh, I have always had an interest in more integrative health and that's, you know, making use of all available modalities. So, you know, we may use pharmaceuticals, we may use procedures, but we may also use um, breath work. We might use, you know, systems of healing that come from other cultures in the world. We might use more sort of talk counseling, we might use goal setting, and that all of those things are valid practices in um, in seeking health and, and things that we and I have used in my practice, but not sort of had any kind of formalized structure for how to bring them together in, in helping people. And so um, I decided to pursue that um, certification, you know, at that time. And since then, I've been able to both um, use those skills in my nurse practitioner practice. I'm, I'm practicing right now um, in primary care in a university health center. So working, you know, I see students as my patients there, college students. Um, and it's a really wonderful sort of set of tools to use with young people who are kind of figuring out for the first time how to manage their own health needs and say like, oh, you know what? If I stay up till two in the morning and have a diet that consists mostly of takeout and beer, I don't feel good. Let me... <laughs> 
like get to the bottom of that. And sort of the first time you kind of realize like, oh, I'm not invincible and I need to take, you know, stock of this. And so I've been able to use the skills in that sense. And then also outside of my clinical practice as a nurse practitioner um, to be sort of out working on my own. And this is, we'll probably get to this in a minute where, where my business Flower Power Health um, came to be as well as giving me another place to work with people using that sort of coaching framework, that wellness-based framework um, that isn't um, within the context of being their primary health care. I can imagine having having an, a provider like you as a college student and learning these tools at age 18 or 19 could be so transformative for the rest of someone's life and health. You opened up Flower Power and I would love you to tell us a little bit about your the idea or the inspiration for Flower Power. Um, when did the idea come to you and then how did you bring it bring it into reality? Yeah, the idea for Flower Power Health came up to me sort of as I was working through the health coaching training, um, because it it sort of sparked in me this idea that um, maybe within a medical practice wasn't the best way for everybody to get the support they need around their health, especially because a lot of people. Uh, are really traumatized by interactions they've had within the healthcare system. And even a very um, compassionate provider might not be enough for that person to sort of um, get towards health um, within a structure like that. Uh, there's a, you know, there's a power dynamic between a, a doctor and a patient. And we see that in, you know, even in our dress code, like who's wearing a white coat? I mean, I don't, but a lot of people do um, in that setting. And it, and it can be very hard, I think, for people to overcome that. Um, and then it, it sometimes it's just around um, expectations and to say, you know, as soon as you sort of set foot into a medical practice, you assume the role of patient and you sort of lose the ability to ask the questions that might really be on your mind. Um, or you might go in, you know, with the expectations around what your goals are and to say like, well, okay, I'm going into the medical clinic. That means it's time to get my prescriptions refilled when it could also be about how do I, um, you know, incorporate exercise into my life in a better way, or how can I make some changes in uh, my habits that will support improvement in my blood lipids. But those aren't things necessarily that seem, um, available in that setting, uh, but they're so important. And for a lot of people, that, that's a, um, a very meaningful way to make progress towards health. And so I wanted to set up a container for that, that also allowed me to work with people on those kinds of personal health projects that was outside of the structure of, well, we've got 20 minute visits and <laughs> we've got the tools that consist of labs, imaging, and pharmaceuticals. Um, and so by pulling back and starting Flower Power Health as a health coaching-based practice rather than a primary care medical model practice, it allowed me that complete flexibility to operate that way. That's super interesting and a helpful um look at how you separate the kind of the primary care work from the health coaching work and also where they kind of meet up. Um, we're wondering actually, what was the uh, name, the I, reason for the name Flower Power? Yeah. You know, people ask me that a lot and there's not like a really cool superhero origin story for that. Um, but as a 
person who's very sort of nature focused. I love the outdoors. I love that kind of piece. That's where flower came from. And power for me is like, it's very much an empowerment project. It's about taking control of your own sort of goals and help. And so I kind of put those together in a, in a fun way that, that just kind of spoke to me. Oh, I love that. Um, and you, you kind of started getting into this, but do you have now today specific goals for the practice as it continues to grow and evolve? Yeah, I do. And um, it, it has evolved a little bit because for, for my initial um, sort of vision of the practice, it, it was um, – it was smaller, I think, than it has become in a way. And it was about maybe seeing a couple of people in a very narrow sense around, okay, we have a 75-minute introductory session, and then we can do a couple of follow-up sessions if we need to. It started out being more about helping people navigate, um, people who were who were stuck with the healthcare system sort of navigate in that space to say like, okay, what are you dealing with that's not getting addressed in your medical visits? And let me help you untangle that and ask better questions and you know figure out what to do in your own um lifestyle practices that can help you feel better while you get the medical stuff sorted out. And it started out very much that way. And and I still do that work. And that work is really helpful for a lot of people, but it's also broadened out quite a bit. And so my um, a lot of the people who I see now who are my clients are really focused on um, building exercise and movement practices and sort of re-envisioning that piece of their life. And, um, you know, I'm a, a recreational athlete myself. And so finding that connection with people has been really, um, uh, transformative in a way. And what I find is that when we work from a place where we are truly interested and passionate in our own power, that comes across so well with other people. And so that's become the sort of, um, a big piece of the work that I do with flower power is, is helping like grownups who were never like, you know what, I, am like an active athletic person. And I love that sense of, of power. And I love the way it makes me feel um, helping people come into that place in their life. And so that's been um, the direction of some of the new programs and, and work that I've been doing with clients at Flower Power. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, you, you touched on a bunch of different aspects that make your practice unique, both as an NP and also as an integrative health coach. But curious, um, what do you think your pa- your patients would say is your secret sauce that makes you an amazing and unique clinician? Yeah, for me, um, I hope this, and I, I, you know, I should actually ask patients this because I think you know, getting it directly from the horse's mouth is sometimes the best way um, to learn more about ourselves. But um, that I try very hard to um, lead with listening. And to make sure that I have a really good understanding of what the concerns and values of the person sitting in front of me are before I start talking. Um, that's hard, you know, in a in a system where we have a limited amount of time with patients. But um, that's something that I've learned um, to do. I I don't want to say efficiently exactly because it's almost anathema, right? Just to, to deep listening is to be efficient, but, um, but tools for getting there quickly um, and, and maybe cutting through some of the hesitancy around that and encouraging honesty and trust building. And those are things that I've learned, um, you know, in coaching in coaching training and in practicing coaching that come back into primary care as well. And so before we try to solve, before 
I try to start solving the problem of the person sitting in front of me, I have to understand how they see the problem. Um, and so I, I think that's the biggest piece um, that, that sets maybe a visit with me apart um, from a visit with somebody else. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. As a patient, I would say that's what I value most of my clinicians as well when they really actively listen and ask me questions. So that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, one last question for you before we move on to some quick hits. Um, you naturally have a couple different positions and some other things that you're working on beyond that. We'd love to understand how you structure your daily or weekly schedule across your multiple positions. Yeah, I think this is really a key to succeeding um, as a person who does multiple different roles um, and as a business owner, that if you try to just kind of wing it, you wind up with a really long to-do list on Monday that is still really long on Friday afternoon. Um, and so for me, um, I try to keep things more structured in, in my life. And I find that actually sort of paradoxically gives me a lot more freedom. So I go to clinic, um, you know, do my clinical job as a nurse practitioner three days a week. I clock in at 830, I clock out at five o'clock and I try to really hold to that. It's not always 100% possible, but I like to spend, you know, the time you know, in the early in the day before patients show up, going through inbox stuff, um, making sure that I've communicated with the team that's working with me that day, um, the medical assistants, the RNs, and, and sort of getting those things um, sorted before the day gets away, because it it will. Um, and, and then trying not to leave myself um, unfinished notes and things at the end of the day. Again, not 100% possible, but I really do try to honor that boundary on those clinic days. And then the days that I'm not in clinic, so you know, right now for me, that would be like a Wednesday and a Friday. I like to try to set my coaching calls um, that I have with clients, active clients during set hours as much as I can. Um, so I'll usually do like between, you know, 10 and four on Wednesdays, I'll be able to do that kind of work. I like to take time, you know, in again, early in the morning, usually to take care of those more sort of routine tasks that come up and then leave myself um, break times to do the things that kind of fill me back up so that I don't feel like I'm getting caught in the drudgery. And I put those things on my calendar too. Like, so I, I my primary um, stress release activity is running. I love running. So I want to make sure that I have time to get my run in in the morning on the those days. So I might say, do my sort of uh, email and accounting between seven and nine, and then go for my run before I do my coaching calls. Um, and so I do try to sort of give myself that amount of structure. And I find that's really the best way to do it. And I do just kind of have to keep the roles separate and make sure that I almost like um, am switching hats um, and not trying to bleed them into each other. I'm not trying to answer emails from my clinic job while I'm doing my coaching work and, and vice versa. That doesn't work well. <laughs> I love that structure and what you said about how structure actually gives you freedom and knowing that you're scheduling in time for yourself and your needs. That feels, that really resonates. I, I like that advice. So we want to move into kind of a quick hit section. I feel like we got a great sense of your story, your ethos, and we want to move into some questions that we can ask you for advice on that we think will be particularly helpful for NPs that are listening in. So the first question is how you encourage medication adherence in your clinical patients? Yeah, so I like to think of uh, treatment plans as not so much adherence-based as concordance-based. So if the 
person I'm working with agrees with me about the treatment plan, if we're on the same page, if we're, you know, in agreement, then it's a little bit easier to, um, to look for them to be following the plan that we made together. It's not like I order this and you do it. It's like we decided together that this was the best approach. And then there are little tips and tricks within there of me helping that person to figure out how that's going to work for them. So, you know, okay, so you decided that you're going to take this med at bedtime every day. What helps you remember that? Um, Oh, you brush your teeth at bedtime every day. Great. Can it live with your toothbrush? So that kind of thing. But it's not so much. I always tell people how to do it and then they follow up. It's like, we work together to be like, what's going to help this stick for you? Yeah, that's that's wonderful in the sense of like really working with the patient, but also using techniques that have been tried and tested like habit stacking and, and the like. Yeah, um, exactly. How do you incorporate cultural competence when you're diagnosing and treating your patients? Yeah, um, I think this goes back to what we were talking about a, a bit ago um, around establishing um, what the patient's values and perceptions of the situation are before I start talking. Um, That doesn't mean that I'm always behaving in a way that's culturally competent, but it it does increase the odds that I'm going to um, meet that person where they're coming from, even if I don't fully understand all of the nuance of that. Um, And then just remaining humble and knowing that I will probably make mistakes and um, be open to learning from them. And when I get corrected um, to say thank you and take that with me. The staying humble allows for lots of learning. So I think that's a really good way to think about it. When a client comes into you in the flower power context, how do you help clients identify their own health and fitness goals if they don't have a clear sense immediately upon coming in? Yeah, that's the work in a lot of cases because oftentimes they don't have a clear set of goals or they do, but they don't wind up being the right goals for them long-term. So what I always start with is we explore some values and some vision in a much more zoomed out sense. And so I might ask questions like, when was the last time you felt joy? (laughs) Or could you tell me about like the best athletic day you had in your life? Or um, tell me some words that you strive for, you know, in your own personality, how would you like your your kids to describe you Um, and sort of getting into that kind of values work. And, you know, for some people, they're kind of surprised by that. They're like, I thought we were going to talk about 10 pounds. And here we're talking about like what makes me my best human self. And, but once we tie those things together, it can really help people to identify what they actually both want and why they want it. And oftentimes it is a little bit different than they might've thought at first. Um, And then we get those things tied to more specific Uh, situations and outcomes and metrics that they can measure. Um, And and then both we get ones that are appropriate for them and we get people invested in in following them. That's a beautiful way to go about it. It's not about the 10 pounds, actually. It's about you feeling awesome. And maybe that means 10 pounds, but maybe that means something entirely different. Mm -hmm. Um, And then once clients have identified their goals, do you have any tools or frameworks that you often find to be very helpful when getting clients to towards those goals? 
Yeah, you know, um, the the sort of broad strokes of what I do are not groundbreaking. We usually set SMART goals, um, which are, you know, used in all kinds of situations in in health and business um, and all kinds of different contexts. And um, I find for a lot of people, a timeline of about three months is a good place to start because that's long enough to do something meaningful, but it's not so long that you can't sort of fathom making some kind of outcome come true. Um, and then we break those down into action steps, which are, you know, very specific things. What could you do this week? What's the first thing that's blocking you from achieving this goal? Let's address that one. Um, and setting up things like, you know, how are you going to get accountability for this? What do you need? You know, do you want me to text you? Are you going to tell your husband? Are you going to, you know, get a friend to come with you? How are those things going to work? You know, simple stuff like that. But oftentimes it's just identifying exactly what the step is and then, um, taking it. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And even just, it sounds like being a source of accountability is already super helpful as well. Yeah, for some people it is. And it's like, I'm never going to tell them, you know, what they need to do. But if they know they promised me they were going to give me an update in three days, that's enough. And I don't even have to do anything except receive the message. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We want to end each of our shows with the same two questions. One is about the healthcare system more broadly, and the other is a bit of a personal reflection question. So the first question is, what changes would you like to see in the American healthcare system to improve patient care? This is a hard question to answer because the American healthcare system is not really set up for optimal patient care. And because it's a, um, a private sector system in a large capacity. You know, we have, we have public insurance in some limited ways and we have the VA and we have, you know, a few things like that, but by and large, it's driven by private companies and private companies have baked in to their being certain motivators, which are financial and those operate alongside and sometimes over top of more values and mission-based work. And it pretty much always wins. Um, that can really distort the work that we do and the ability that we have to do it. And so when we look at the future of healthcare in the US, um, for me, you know, if I had a magic wand, I would get away from that model. Um, and we see that in other in other countries, um, you know, there's there's pros and cons to public based systems, but um, the disparities between the haves and the have nots that exist in the the system that we have now, which is largely private, are unconscionable. Um, so. I, I don't know exactly how we might get there from here. Uh, we've tried <laughs> and it hasn't worked in um, any sort of meaningful way. There have been some, some things that have made progress in some ways in which there have been steps back. Um, but, to, you know, and I think that goes back to my early experiences working, you know, in the, in the role where uh, I saw largely uninsured patients and having to make those hard decisions. Um, as long as that's, the case, it's, it's hard for me to see a, a way forward through a system that enables that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and although it's 
a private-based system. It's a private-based system that's made up of very large corporations that also don't always operate in a very transparent way. Um, and there certainly aren't really market dynamics at play. So we don't really have the good parts of a private system. And we certainly don't have the good parts of a public system. So yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Although I will say there is a lot of um, innovation that's going on in the health tech space now. And especially um, I, I see some interesting projects around value-based care and some companies that are, that are mission-driven um, and are working to balance the sort of... Uh, values and mission of, of being a service oriented organization with the imperatives of surviving in a business, you know, capitalist kind of system. Um, I don't think it's hopeless, um, but you're right, especially with larger companies, um, we don't always see those pieces getting balanced. Yeah, yeah, there are certainly a lot of bright spots and even a lot of ways that you could structure it to make sure that you're balancing both mission and the financial side of things. Um, and then our last question for you, what is some advice that you want everyone to hear or walk away from this conversation with? You don't have to be stuck in a single path. Um, there are different ways that you can explore, you know, the, the choices that you make in your career that can align with both values that you hold around why you're doing the work you do and practical pieces around, you know, what you do between eight and five every day and, and who signs your paychecks or, you know, pays you directly if that's what you prefer. Um, I think it can be easy, especially early in your career to see that there are some various tunnels that you can go down and to think that, that they're the only choices and that once you're in one, you have to stay in it forever. Um, and I have learned through experience that that's not the case. And it can be scary, I think, to sort of step off onto side paths um, because you don't necessarily know exactly where they're going to wind up. But you have lots and lots of choices, especially in nursing, and you can always come back to, to other paths. Um, but if you lead with what feels right to you and aligns with your value system, you can't really mess up. <laughs> That is amazing advice. We, when we were thinking about the questions that we wanted to wrap up with, we asked each other the question. And the thing that we both said is, if you leave with passion, you can't go the wrong way. And hearing you say that, especially in the context of all that you've done in your career and all that you've achieved, it's really amazing to hear it. Before we wrap up, is there anything that we didn't ask you? Um, anything that you want the audience to know about you or, or any other things on your mind? I think I'm pretty much an open book. Um, although that does remind me something that you had mentioned that uh, that we didn't wind up talking about was if there was a book um, that I thought was particularly valuable. And, and I thought about this a little bit because I, there's plenty of things that I could say that are business books or something like that. But what came to mind for me actually um, is a novel. And um, it's a novel that... Um, helps me, I think, to develop empathy for the patient experience and the sort of overall um, idea of what it can be like to be a patient and especially in a scary situation. And the book is um, The Great Believers. It's by Rebecca Mackay, and it deals with um, the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. And um, it really, really helped me to, I think, develop empathy for 
the sort of fear and uncertainty of um, being a, a person in a space that we don't have all the answers to. Um, and for a lot of patients, that's reality. So for people who are interested in, you know, in that clinical space, who are interested in something from the humanities that could really inform the way you think about healthcare, that would be one I would recommend. Such a good recommendation. Thank you so much for your time today. This was an incredible conversation. You're so full of wisdom. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.